The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. Um, This is a topic today that is important to all of us. We all wear clothes, at least most of the time, I guess. And we're going to be talking about some exciting new innovations in the sustainable apparel movement. And spearheading this movement is the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC. Uh, They have a new program that's been around just a little while called the Clean by Design Program. And we have the person responsible for that program on today, Dr. Linda Greer. As many of you who listen to the show know, I love having folks on from the NRDC. They are brilliant scientists, doctors, lawyers, all committed to protecting the natural resources upon which our entire standard of living depends. And today's guest is no exception. Linda Greer is the director of the NRDC's Health and Environment Program. She sits on the National Academy of Sciences Board of Environmental Studies and Toxicology and has a PhD in environmental toxicology from the University of Maryland. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Dr. Greer. Greer, It is great to have you on the show. Thank you, and it's great to be here. Well, before we dive in deep to the details of the NRDC's Clean by Design program, I'd like for you to help us understand the need for such a program. Um, I read that before developing the Clean by Design program, you worked on pollution issues in China. And so I'd love for you to talk to, about, talk to us about what you saw there and how it relates to the textile industry. Sure. Well, you know, no one can travel to China and not be immediately struck by the pollution levels there. Um, And in fact, I remember the very first time I landed in China, in Beijing, uh, when the plane landed, I could barely see the ground. You know, we were almost on the ground before the plane landed. And then I learned later that all of their pilots have special training in how to land in high fog situations, which in their case is always smog. Mm-hmm. So the, the, it's a country that's notorious for its air pollution, which a lot of tourists get to see firsthand. And it's also really bad um, in terms of water pollution. There's not a single city you can go to and drink the water out of the tap. And when you look at the rivers in China, they just look almost like um, sewage uh, areas. They're full of trash, they're dark black, and you can't imagine that anything is really living in those rivers. Um, you know, last but not least, we know China is the highest emitter of CO2 in the world, uh, contributing to our climate change problem. That's, I guess, the invisible problems of China. But the day-to-day industrial pollution in China is really hard to miss. Mm-hmm. And how does that relate to the textile industry? What connection did you make between that pollution and, you know, the textile manufacturing that's happening in China? 
Yeah, so my mission when I first went over there, which was given to me by the president of NRDC, was to figure out what we could really do about a big, bad pollution problem there, that NRDC had a new office in Beijing, and that we really needed to be working on air and water pollution as well as climate change problems there. And so I just started from the top, sort of follow the pounds, and looked for an industry that had a big impact, either in air or water pollution or both. And the textile industry really distinguished itself in this very negative way, so that when I was looking at the data that was available, the scientific data that was available, uh, the textile industry proved to be um, really the, well, third among industry in terms of its wastewater discharges and the user of approximately 25% of all the chemicals manufactured globally was going into textile manufacturing in China. And so I selected textiles as a starter industry, uh, you know, where our work could pack a punch as one of the biggest water polluters in the country. You know, in the U.S., we've become very accustomed to being able to buy cheap clothing manufactured overseas. And I think most Americans are aware that this is possible in large part due to cheap labor, but may not realize there's an environmental protection aspect to the low cost of their clothing as well. You know, manufacturing conditions that we would never tolerate in the U.S., the EPA would never let us, you know, operate in such a way, are less controlled in other countries. And I'd like for you to help us understand how varying governmental controls impact the low cost of our clothing options. Yeah, right. I mean, this is sort of an untold story, I think. I really agree that what people don't realize is um, the environmental impacts of globalization. So, you know, we all know that much of our manufacturing has left our shores and has gone around the world to other places, which is cheaper. And there are a lot of labor reasons that that is cheaper. Uh, those labor issues happen sort of at the end of manufacturing where people are either cutting and sewing garments or where they're assembling our electronics and that sort of thing. Very labor intensive. But when you look up the supply chain to the materials that go into all these goods that we buy, that's where you find these big, bad environmental impacts. And as industrial manufacturing has massively globalized, what they've really done is these industries have sort of flashed back to the 1960s in terms of how goods are really manufactured. So back in the day, in the 1970s and 80s, and even into the early 90s here in the United States, we had all of our industries regulated under the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, the Superfund Law. We had, you know, mature state regulatory systems with permits and inspections and enforcement, and Mm -hmm. we just took for granted that it was no longer the case that you would look outside your window and see a big billowing black smokestack coming out of any factory in the land. That was from a lot of work from Mm -hmm. the environmental community and also from the government. Uh, But where these industries have located, most notably China, but also other parts of the developing world, there are really no functioning government programs in place that can keep up with the problems of manufacturing. So that although countries like China have very good 
uh, laws on the books, uh, sort of the rule book is okay, uh, what is uh, the rest of the reality in terms of the capacity, the staff, the technical knowledge, and the political will to curtail pollution impacts is just really not in place. So, you know, I call it the wild, wild east over there. Uh, it really isn't what people, you, unless you see it, you can't really imagine it. Uh, it's just such a massive concentration of poorly controlled factories creating these big hot spots of pollution. Mm-hmm. I think even for some Americans who do understand the environmental pollution and wasted resources associated with overseas textile manufacturing, it might be easy to think that, well, sorry for them, you know, the damage is contained in their countries far away from us. But from what I read on the NRDC website and some of the materials that I went through to prepare for this show, the truth seems to be that the environmental degradation also reaches our shores. And I'd like for you to talk about some of the risks to Americans as a result of importing clothing that's not manufactured in a sustainable way. Yes. Well, there really are direct risks to Americans' health. And you're right. People think it's far away, so it can't possibly be affecting them. Um, The first one to point to is air pollution. So air pollution on the West Coast, about 30% of the baseline air pollution in cities like Los Angeles has come all the way across the Pacific Ocean uh, onto our shores. It's really kind of mind-boggling to think that that's even possible because the Pacific Ocean seems like such a vast area. But you can see in NASA satellite shots uh, these big pollution plumes that come over to us And then that is a big hunk of pollution that our own regulators can't do anything about. So that when Los Angeles is having a bad air pollution day from other sources, including like the traffic, et cetera, really it's a huge headache that on top of everything we're generating ourselves, we've got one-third additional coming across the ocean. So that's Mm -hmm. the first That's the first way American health is affected. The other way, though, is uh, through the food chain. Um, I have to remind people that about 70% of the fish that we eat is imported. A lot of it is imported for Asia. Those fish are swimming around in highly polluted seas that are receiving all these contaminants from the rivers in China, pouring into, for example, the South China Sea, and then going right into things like our tuna fish and other fish that we eat from there. So I sometimes say, you know, part of what we get is diluted as it travels over the Pacific Ocean, part of what we get is delivered to us in concentrated form right into our food pantries mm-hmm. uh, when we buy a can of tuna fish. And so the, even though these are sources that are far away, the way that pollution moves around is really quite global. Mm-hmm. And that's how our own um, health is affected. Um, the- and, of course, don't let me forget, and I need to mention, that our climate change problem, which has huge public health implications as well as uh, economic and and other environmental implications comes from carbon emitted anywhere in the world. It really doesn't matter where the carbon is coming out. It's a global pollutant circling around and we're every bit as impacted here from the carbon in China as Chinese citizens are themselves. 
Absolutely. Now, I'd like to switch gears and talk about the Clean by Design program. And I'd like to begin by having you give us a little history lesson. When did it start? And where is it being rolled out currently? So it started in China, and it started about six years ago. Um, That was when I started to put the components together and do um, sort of a fact-finding mission and a bit of a prolonged homework phase to figure out what was really going on there. The problem was obvious. You know, the the numbers about the pollution from the textile industry was obvious, but we needed to spend some time to try to understand what was the source of the problem and then begin to craft a strategy that was a solution. Um, as I joke with people, if you're me, you're a kid in a candy store in China <laughs> because there's pollution, every kind of pollution I've ever worked on in levels higher than anything I've ever worked on before. The real trick is what can we do about it that would be effective? How could we really reduce that pollution? And so the Clean by Design program was really the, the, the sweat part of that was not the target of the textile sector, but was the what are we going to do about it that could possibly work in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, we're going to take a quick break here in just a moment. But one of the things that I think is so exciting about the Clean by Design program, and we'll dive into it in the next segment, is how you've made such a complex problem fairly simple, uh, you know, with your best practices and making it sort of a one-sheet, you know, checklist, basically, for mills to follow. And I think what's exciting is seeing how you funneled all of this information into something so very doable. And after we come back from break, we're going to dive into the details. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Today's topic is all about the sustainable apparel movement and a program that the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC, is spearheading, working with uh, both manufacturing mills and with some top brands, uh, retailers and manufacturers of apparel that we all are familiar with to clean up the manufacturing process and make the clothing that we purchase more sustainable. Um, And so we're joined today by Dr. Linda Greer. And right before the commercial break, we were talking about their Clean by Design program. And I want to dive into the four major impact areas covered by that program. Let's start with raw materials. Uh, Linda, what are the environmental concerns in this area and how does the Clean by Design program address raw materials? Yeah, so just let me say at the outset that what we've done in the program is we've identified basically four hotspots in the industry that matter the most. What we saw was there was sort of this chaotic splatter of efforts and uh, um, pieces of information on the Internet that I thought was very chaotic and probably confusing to designers and to other people in the industry uh, in order to for them to figure out how to spend their time. And so we picked four areas of impact for Clean by Design, and those are the ones that pack the punch in terms of environmental. So the first is the one we're about to talk about, the fibers and fabrics that they select for the clothes. The next is, next is where they manufacture their goods. The third is how they transport those goods around the world and to our stores. And then the last is the consumer care directions that they give to us, you know, here at home for how to take care of our clothes. Mm -hmm. So my view is that if companies and designers work in those four areas, they will take care of more than 85% of their impact and they can leave a lot of other side issues alone for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then diving into the, the fiber one for starters, um, what the, I think what the in, uh, listeners would first be interested to learn is that the natural fibers, particularly cotton, are actually not that much better for the environment than synthetic fibers, which was a total shock for me personally to even learn about. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then the more I dug in, the more I saw the reason for that. So the environmental impacts of fiber is the agricultural impacts of growing it. And so taking cotton as our most important natural fiber, uh, people should know it's a very chemical-intensive crop. It uses about one-third of all the pesticides used in agriculture just for cotton. Wow. And it also uses a lot of fertilizer. And it is a huge, thirsty crop and needs tons of irrigation, a big issue for our state of California as well as other places in the world because much cotton is actually grown in places that experience severe water shortages. So that is one heavy-handed fiber there, the cotton fiber. And um, what we have as an alternative, of course, is organic cotton, 
and something called better cotton, which is sort of sustainably grown but not quite as good as organic cotton. Neither of those, by the way, gets to the heart of the water problem. It just mm-hmm. gets to the pesticide and fertilizer problem. And so really cotton winds up with quite a black eye um, in terms of stacking it against other fiber types. That is so um, surprising, Linda. I mean, you know, we see cotton, the fabric of our life, you know, commercials. And exactly. so that you just taught me a lesson. Tell us more. Uh, so then uh, polyester comes in as the second bad one. Um, it, it's in part because polyester is the second biggest fiber used, uh, cotton being the first, the most common fiber. And, of course, as most listeners know, we have a lot of blends of 50-50 or 90-10 and that sort of thing. But the problem with polyester is different. The polyester problem is climate change because there's a very large amount of energy used to produce the polyester. Um, so whereas cotton contributes about 20 kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of fabric, mm-hmm. uh, polyester contributes 30 kilograms per kilogram. So it's, you know, basically 50% higher. So polyester gets a black eye for its climate change impact, whereas cotton gets the black eye for these other impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one that I like to talk about is rayon. So rayon represents less than 10% of all the fiber in the clothing that we buy. Uh, So in mass of clothing, it's low, but it's a very high contributor to environmental footprint, very high. And its source, the source of rayon is wood pulp. So the first problem we have is deforestation problems where people are mowing down forests, including sometimes virgin forests, Mm -hmm. to make wood pulp for rayon. And then where it's processed when it comes into the factory is very chemical intensive. So both agriculturally speaking and then chemically speaking, rayon is a big piece of bad news. Um, Although there is a good alternative to rayon called lyocell, and people can see um, one is tencel, T-E-N-C-E-L, and then lyocell, L-Y-O-C-E-L-L, and those rayon... um, uh, Apparel with those two types of rayon usually has a hang tag saying made of tensile, made of lyocell. And those are much, much better um, forms of rayon because they are mostly made with sustainable pulp and they use much less chemicals. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me add two more fibers and then we can move on to another hot spot. Uh, Silk is good news. Everybody should know. Uh, Mm. The way that silk is grown is actually inherently pretty environmentally sound uh, using, you know, basically silkworms that eat mulberry bushes. This is a little personal funny story because I thought at the beginning, well, I wonder what kind of pesticides they use on mulberry bushes. Uh And then somebody pointed out to me that, well, the worms have to eat the mulberry bushes and live, so... <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> don't... <laughs> too much insecticide, and I just True. thought, you know, duh. <laughs> you know, people with PhDs can be pretty stupid. Uh, so that was kind of obvious, you know, and I didn't even think of it myself. Um, and then where the, the silk is sort of first taken off the cocoon and reeled and then later died is actually uh, pretty low impact compared to other things. Hmm. So you can feel pretty good about your silk purchases. Nice. But cashmere, I've got to tell you, is oh, no. really a 
huge problem. I'm bracing uh, because myself. <laughs> it's, uh, oh, basically, uh, you know, as I'm sure you've noticed, uh, cash, you can buy cashmere sweaters now everywhere, you know, even at very lower end um, retailers like, you know, a Walmart or a Target or a Kohl's. And so the amount of cashmere that we now grow in the world is immensely higher than it used to be when, you know, if people had one cashmere sweater, that was considered a luxury, you know, back in my mother's day. And cashmere goats are mostly grown in Mongolia, which is a very fragile ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And as I've been told, their hoofs are like stilettos. So wherever they walk, they are chopping up the grasslands and, you know, really ruining uh, the agriculture there in big, big ways. Uh, So I've also been told that the best quality cashmere is from goats that are starving and freezing. Oh, I can't stand it. I can't stand to think about, uh, although I hope it's not always true, uh, but cashmere as kind of a no-no as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. If you want to go with something soft and nice like that, I recommend alpaca, which is a completely different um, beast and a completely different um, impact, very low impact. Their their feet are like a pads that a a dog has, very soft feet, and they are not being overly grown in fragile areas. So I would say if well, you want a soft, exotic know. fiber, go there. All right. Well, that's great information. I, I have been enlightened. Well, let's talk about sort of the epicenter of what's going on with the Clean by Design program, the manufacturing process. Talk to us about what you're working on there. Yeah, so this is our big focus because it has such a big impact. And what people have to sort of picture and imagine is a very heavy industry type of setting. So, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think of the fashion industry as having this impact, but the factories that dye and finish the fabric look like, uh, what can I say, there's big vats of boiling, colorful liquids, there's water all over the floor, there's steam coming out of all these pipes, it's incredibly hot because the process is run so hot, and then there's usually piles of like weeping fabric, I call it, things that were off spec that need to be dyed again. And so uh, many of these factories, Mm. about 70% of the time it's okay, but 30% of the time they miss the color. So they have to take the whole, you know, mess and run it all back through again to make the color match the standard that they're trying to meet for their buyer. So when we were facing this sort of uh, manufacturing, you know, far below the global standards that we were accustomed to here in the United States or in Western Europe, we realized that we needed to do something that was uh, simple uh, that that these factories could align around to deliver improved results. And so we created a set of 10 best practices that all factories should be implementing. Um, and these 10 best practices were based on a prolonged sort of set of homework where we went into mills and we studied with international experts where the problems were that were leading to all this waste and came up with practices that would basically batten down the hatches, you know, reduce the leaks, uh, reduce the waste, and by reducing the use of water and energy and chemicals would also save the company's money. 
so that the model of Clean by Design and the model that we came up with, with the 10 best practices, was a business-friendly sort of win-win model that even if you didn't care about your environmental impact, if you cared about your bottom line, you would want to do it as well. Um, because we recognize that in China, the sort of environmental awareness and the level of concern was not really where it needed to be to motivate these factories to make these improvements. Mm -hmm. Um, The 10 best practices have turned out to be uh, stellar. They've been implemented now in many factories, more than 50. Actually, next week I go to Shanghai to do a big presentation of our last 30 uh, factories, 33 factories that we brought to scale with uh, Clean by Design. And they are achieving reductions as high as 40% of water and energy use with um, really simple, low-cost improvements that tend to pay themselves back in less than a year. Linda, that is fantastic. Thank you. Just the kind of solutions we're looking for for pollution in general in China. Well, and the thing is, I mean, when you can talk about a payback period that's less than a year, that's doable. So many times when you see things happening in sustainable supply chain programs, some of the payback periods are so long that for cash-strapped operations, they're just unrealistic. So I love how pragmatic this program is. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the two next major hot spots in uh, textile manufacturing that the Clean by Design program is a So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. World. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Our guest today, in case you're just tuning in, is uh, Dr. Linda Greer, and she is with the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC, and they have a clean by design program that we're talking about that is creating a sustainable apparel movement. And one of the four major hotspot areas covered by the Clean by Design program is transportation. Linda, talk to us about the environmental impact of the various choices for transporting textiles and some of the methods for creating a greener logistics plan. Sure. So transportation is pretty simple because I've got to tell you, this is actually all about airplanes and a little bit about trucks. So most apparel, that is actually more than 90% of it, travels around the world on container ship as sea freight. Um, And that is a, relatively speaking, low-impact way to transport things around. But air freight is used when uh, orders need to be rushed, which happens more often than you would think. And the impact of air freight on climate change is 100 times greater than for ship transportation. So that you can imagine the math here, that if you use even a little bit of air freight, the carbon footprint that you have could be really dominated by those rush shipments that traveled by air instead of by sea. Uh, So Mm -hmm. there's a very significant reduction possible in environmental footprint if you can get designers and companies to keep their goods out of the air. Um, Mm -hmm. And let me just mention before I leave the topic of transportation that people are probably thinking right now, I'm talking just about taking the goods that were made in China and shipping them over to the stores here, but every step of the way of manufacture entails transportation in many cases. So a common example would be the cotton would be grown in America. We would ship that cotton to China to spin it and weave it and dye it. We would then ship that fabric to Vietnam to cut it and sew it. And if we wanted to be fancy, we'd leave the last sleeve off in the collar, send it to Italy. They would put those last two pieces on along with the tag that would say, made in Italy. (laughs) That is insane. Oh, my gosh. And that is a globalized supply chain, and it's sort of the world travel of even a simple T-shirt that you might be buying at a store. So it's not just the last step, it's all those steps of the way. Wow. And then once it gets to the mainland, I'm assuming that rail might be a good option versus... Yes, uh, rail is basically much better than trucks uh, because our trucks are a big source of air pollution. Uh, Still today, we don't have them working at quite the level of cleanliness that we have our automobiles going, and uh, trains are much better, and they're more fuel efficient as well. Mm -hmm. So train is good where we can do it. Unfortunately, in America, we don't have a good train system, so things can only get so far into so many places on a train, and we do rely very heavily on trucks. 
Mm-hmm. And we could spin off into an infrastructure discussion that I could go on about for days, but <laughs> we won't really? do that right I'll now. I'll line you up with several NRDC experts on that one. <laughs> Perfect. That's one of my favorite topics. The final uh, hotspot that you address with the Clean by Design program is consumer care. And really, until I was reading you know, about the Clean by Design program, I hadn't really thought about that. And so talk to us about that aspect of the Clean by Design program. Sure. So when you look at it, um, there really is an impact, especially here in America, um, on the consumer care choices that you make. Again, this is pretty simple. There's only a few things to know about. First is how often you wash your clothes. And I would say don't be like my kids and just throw (laughs) something into the laundry hamper because you're too lazy to fold it and put it away. (laughs) A lot of people do that, right? You know, it's on the floor or whatever, and they're just going to wash it because it seems like a simpler thing to do. But don't do that. Only wash things when they actually need to be cleaned or freshened up. Don't just do it out of habit. Don't have a rule that, you know, you wash your blue jeans, you wear your blue jeans twice and then wash them. Actually, only wash your clothes when they need to be washed. Um, The second... um, a big impact is whether or not you use cold water or hot water. And there are a number of really excellent cold water laundry detergents now on the market. I personally use cold water Tide. I'm here to tell you everything Ditto. seems to come out just as clean as ever. Yep. And people can use a number of different brands of cold water detergents that I think they'll find very effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last area is dry cleaning. Uh, dry cleaning has a very big environmental impact because for the most part, most conventional dry cleaning is done with very toxic solvent. And that solvent, by the way, leaves a, a residue on your clothing. So when you bring this stuff home in its plastic bag, you will get an exposure, a small exposure to that residue, even yourself and your family. Mm-hmm. So I would say minimize uh, your dry cleaning. Uh, many items of clothing that say dry clean only can, in fact, be hand-washed with a mild detergent or mm-hmm. soap. And I would encourage people to push the envelope here and reduce the amount of clothes that they bring to the cleaners. Mm-hmm. You can use a little wool light in the sink and hang it up. And I, I, I highly recommend it. It's a lot cheaper, too. <laughs> a little money Much savings cheaper. on the way. <laughs> exactly. Much cheaper. One of the things that I was so impressed to to see with the Clean by Design program is that you're simultaneously working at the grassroots level with the mills in various countries to create, you know, a viable, auditable set of case studies of success. And you're also creating partnerships with some of the biggest names in the apparel industry to help them implement your program within their supply chain. So I'd love for you to spend some time talking to us about how this two-pronged strategy is working and furthermore, what you envision for the next five years of the program's implementation. Look into your crystal ball a little bit and tell us what you see. Sure. So this is my favorite part of the project, actually, is that it has these two really different facets that are working on a parallel track and that have to be kind of interlinked in order for this whole thing to cross the finish line. So the challenge with the mills is, we, as I described earlier in the show, we know that they have a lot of really juicy opportunities to make improvements and save money, but they're not doing it. And why are they not doing it? You know, I've banged my head against the wall about this so often uh, to understand what does it take to motivate them and give them the capacity to undertake these changes. And what I finally settled on is that really this was like a literacy program. 
uh, that the mills were not run by people that had a lot of advanced college education in engineering or business school, that a lot of them had been you know, basically tailors as young people and then became very successful entrepreneurs and found themselves running these huge factories uh, with no real background for how to do it. And so the, 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 the mill track, which is run by my China team in our Beijing office, is really half engineering and half psychology. <laughs> uh, sort of how do you talk in a way, how do you explain things in a way that people can understand? How can you be really persuasive and salient in how you present that? Who are the persuasive speakers? Who would have credibility? You know, how do you sell the message? It's sort of an interesting, uh, very novel uh, area of advocacy uh, for NRDC and for NRDC in China, not, you know, our usual sort of audience. Mm-hmm. And what we've found, the ticket is, is turning out to be, is that mills learn best from other mills. And that makes sense now when I say that, but it took us a little while to stumble upon that the most credible voices are other Chinese mill owners who have done the program and who are, you know, happy to tell you the story of how well it went. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we are growing the program is to expose mills to other mills to kind of prime the well as we go. And one of the most exciting thing about our event next week in Shanghai where we're releasing a report of all the stellar results from 2014 is that we have about 20 mills that are on tap to come into the program this summer in 2015 into 2016 who are going to attend that um, event and hear from the mills that have already done it. So the mill track is really, you know, sort of novel and exciting. Um, on the other track, the multinational corporation track, that's, um, that's a more typical advocacy agenda for me at NRDC uh, since uh, trying to change corporations and the way they do business. I would say that's more up a conventional line of fire for NRDC here in America. Mm-hmm. And there, I have to say that we have our work cut out for ourselves. We have a very good and strong handful of brands that have stepped out in front to do this project with us. And they are Target, Gap, Levi, and H&M. Mm-hmm. And we have a number of other companies that I would say are in a close orbit, um, ready to dive in, companies that have done it a little bit and who plan to aggrandize that effort. Uh, the biggest one I can think of is a corporation called VF Corporation that listeners may not have heard of, but they're the ones that own Wrangler and Lee and Timberland and North Face, a lot of brands that people mm-hmm. have heard of. So those, that is another corporation that's close. But for the most part, most company programs in sustainability are falling quite short on uh, doing anything at all in their supply chain. You know, they sort of still have a plausible deniability mentality that, you know, everything is far away and Mm -hmm. opaque and hard for them to come to grips with. And they're really actively denying the big problem right under their noses um, and wasting time on little things 
that they call sustainability initiatives that are not really very important and are more for PR. Mm-hmm. So this is where we really need a fundamental shift in the way these companies do business. Uh, you know, they made a decision 10 or 15 years ago to take their manufacturing out of America and Western Europe where the government uh, was in place to curtail the impacts of their manufacturing. They made a choice to move it to places where that was not in place, and now they have responsibility to curtail their environmental footprint if they want to be considered a responsible business. Absolutely. So a long, long way to go for this one to sort of shake things up there in corporate America, I'm sad to say. Well, and I think, you know, when headlines like the fires in the Bangladesh uh, textile you know, mills happened and, 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 you know, Walmart took all the heat for that. I mean, they were not the only ones buying from those um, manufacturing plants, but they were the ones who made the headlines. When things like that happen and people start to look at the social aspect of the supply chain and then begin to dig down deeper into the environmental aspect of a company's supply chain, I think consumers are on the verge of really being ready to hold companies accountable for their raw materials and, and how they do their business, not just, you know, the, the storefronts here in America and whether they use CFL light bulbs. Um, I, think, exactly. I think we're just about there. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Dr. Linda Greer from the NRDC. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just before the break, I made a comment about how consumers are are really on the cusp of holding companies accountable for the sustainability and the social responsibility of their supply chain. It's becoming um, a, a much more transparent issue. And Linda, I know you wanted to make a comment on that, so I want to give you a chance to do that. Great. Yeah. I just wanted to sort of reinforce your your notion that the curtain is really rising around the world on these sorts of problems, uh, thanks to the Internet, thanks to social media. Even in China, which is a very repressed country in terms of information, we have Chinese citizens taking pictures, putting them on maps and sending them around, doing their own videos, etc. So the corporations really uh, dally at their own risk here. And I've argued with many of them that they really want to get ahead of this problem and start resolving some of the problems that they're causing rather than get caught by Greenpeace uh, doing an expose on their toxic discharges. So I'm hoping that they'll have the modern world will catch up to the executive suites of these companies (laughs) and that they'll take this uh, pretty seriously as a high priority for their work. Um, There is, by the way, um, an index that we have recently put together with a Chinese NGO that uh, people might be interested in following up on after the show called the Corporate Information Transparency Index Mm -hmm. uh, that gives scores. It's a a report card for uh, apparel companies and actually some other types of companies for the level of their responsibility um, for factories in their supply chain in China. Again, Mm -hmm. just trying to shine the light of exposure on what the day-to-day practices are over there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. We've had people on in the beverage industry uh, on Go Green Radio, and they seem to be a little bit more in tune with the fact that we live in a resource-constrained world and that successful businesses in the 21st century are going to have to be sustainable. They're going to have to minimize, you know, the their use of water, their use of energy, and, and reduce their pollution and, and waste streams by a lot. And I think the textile industry seems to be just a little bit behind some of the folks in the food and beverage industry. And I don't know why that is, but I'm hoping they'll catch up. In some industries, you know, we see companies waiting to quote-unquote, go green until their customers or their shareholders demand sustainable practices. For these companies that have already joined you, Linda, what is motivating them to work to implement the Clean by Design program? Yeah, so, you know, as you were just pointing out, the food industry and the beverage industry is ahead. I think part of the reason is that you can buy things labeled as organic or, you know, grown sustainably for tea or cocoa or something like that. And we don't have that um, in clothing yet. I think eventually we will. We'll have a hang tag that says something like made sustainably. But at the moment, that's not the motivating factor for apparel companies because they don't have, consumers don't know what they need to know in order to make those sorts of selections. And so what I've seen as motivating companies that are really doing this is, Two different types of things. 
One is that there is a CEO or a well-placed person in the organization at the top that has a personal passion to do a sustainable business. And so that is really lucky. So actually H&M, their CEO, is a younger guy. It's, I forgot his name. It's either a Mr. H or a Mr. M from the, fashion, <laughs> from the families that um, made H&M in the first place. And he's just personally very passionate about this, and it comes right from the top. You know, similarly, at the other end is a luxury conglomerate named Caring, that's K-E-R-I-N-G, that owns Gucci and Stella McCartney and East St. Laurent and those sorts of, of brands. And the Caring CEO is personally very passionate. I was just with him on a panel discussion at the Parsons Design School last week in New York, and you know he was just on fire with all these great initiatives that Caring is doing. Uh, by the way, including a Clean by Design initiative with NRDC in Italy, which has been really a kick for me, very, very fun. Mm. So that's one, that's one uh, sort of strand of why these companies are doing it. Um, just let me mention Target, who has been an excellent partner with NRDC and Clean by Design, really stellar. And again, there, it's not so much necessarily the CEO, but a group of people in their apparel department and social responsibility department that join forces and together are really working it. And it shows, you know, it really shows. So... That's one, that's one um, sort of strand. The other strand is companies that are doing it because they feel like they have to do it. And that's because uh, something bad has happened that is impacting, negative impacting their brand reputation. And that, you know, such as from a, a labor expose or something like that that makes them feel like um, it's more the stick than the carrot, mm-hmm. that unless they get ahead of this thing, they're going to be in big trouble. And there's a large number of companies that are um, kind of on the run from an effective Greenpeace campaign, a zero discharge campaign for apparel that Greenpeace launched about a year and a half ago and forced the hands of, I believe it's almost 20 apparel companies to sign commitment letters to zero discharge by 2020. Um, I have been amazed to watch how much faster companies have signed those commitment letters than joined NRDC's business-friendly Clean by Design program. (laughs) And as I've said to all of them, what would you like me to learn from that experience? (laughs) Um, Without question, it is true that it's better to have these companies motivated by being afraid than by, uh, you know, the bottom line. And that's really sad, particularly for me, since my project was designed to be so business-friendly. And I do think in the end it is going to take off and has been taking off, but it really does seem like the fear factor is a more effective motivation for corporate America than the business-friendly sustainability journey. <laughs> well, let me tell you what's going to happen, Linda. I'll look into my crystal ball. The, the fear will drive them to sign the pledge, and then they'll scurry to find somebody who will teach them how to do it, and they'll come to you. So th- that's what I predict. Um, you know, for- <laughs> that is so funny because another quip I have about my program is it's an elegant solution to a problem they don't think they have. <laughs> and so you're exactly right. The way I see the crystal ball 
is that thanks to the visibility of the problems of the industry, thanks to the Internet, thanks to some of these grassroots campaigns and organizations like Greenpeace, this has become a problem, and then we're ready with the solution to the problem, which is a great place to find ourselves. Exactly. Well, we have just about a minute left, and I'd like for you to give us a preview of a big report that you have coming out on April 15th. Can you give us just a kind of a Reader's Digest version of what it will include? Yeah, so this is the uh, compilation of all of our results from 2014, the first major scale-up of the Clean by Design program. The results are great, really important environmental reductions and really head-turning cost savings. Every mill in the program reduced their water and energy use and saved money, and we have a kind of like a hall of fame of the top achievers who did really interesting things with stories that I think will be very compelling, both for ordinary people and also for other mill owners who we hope will be inspired to take this lead and move forward with us in the coming years. Well, Linda, I want to thank you for the hard work that you're doing. I I just am thrilled that we got a chance to talk with you today. And folks, you heard it first here. If you are looking for companies who are really making a substantial move in the right direction, it's H&M, Target, Gap, Levi. They're working with the NRDC to make this happen. You know, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, folks, have a great week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.